Well, good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you're joining us for the first time, first time in a long time, first time at church, man, we're just so glad that you're here. You may have walked in with a lot of faith, a little bit of faith, or maybe, maybe no faith, man. Maybe you thought somebody was taking you to brunch. You, know, you got brought here today. Whatever it is, we're glad that you're here. We hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted, and that you make yourself at home here at the Vista. Now, today we are in the second week of our brand new series called The Apocalypse, A Study of Revelation. And to just go ahead and, and break the ice and say what I, I know you're all thinking and just acknowledge it, uh, yeah, Revelation is a very weird book. It is. It's filled with these psychedelic visions of, you know, like angels and demons and giant red dragons and bowls of wrath and these cosmic battles. It's, it's kind of like a crossover between uh, Touched by an Angel and Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead. That's the best comp I can come up with. Something, if you put those things together, that's Revelation. And I think because Revelation is so kind of odd and weird, it has this uncanny ability to pull the weird out of us, doesn't it? I think we've all got that very eccentric uncle who spent a little too much time studying Revelation when he was younger. And so I always tries to corner you at Thanksgiving with his theories on who the Antichrist is. I know who the Antichrist is. You're like, Uncle Rick, bro, I'm just trying to get over there to the giblets. Get out of the way. Tell that stuff to the kids, man. Got some giblets to eat. We go to it looking for these secret messages and these hidden codes, sneak peeks into the future. It's like we've got this addiction to secrets and predictions. Have you ever noticed this? Oh, we do. And so you put revelation in front of us, and man, we're like, a, we're like an alcoholic at a bar, a glutton at a buffet, a hipster at Marfa, a stay-at-home mom at Target. We just can't <laughs> help ourselves when you get this book in front of us. Just can't help it. It's all there. And so because of all this, last week we started the series with the, uh, the, the observation that the first sentence in Revelation is the most important sentence of Revelation. Because if you don't understand John's very first sentence, then you will not understand any of his subsequent sentences. And before you know it, you will have started your own cult and told everybody to give you their wives and all their money because Jesus is coming back soon. And that's the only way for them to be on Jesus' good side when he returns. Right? Those are the stakes. And I'm not trying to raise up any cult leaders here. So we'll return again to the first phrase and make sure we get started off on the right foot here. Revelation 1, verse 1, the very first phrase says what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. And we said the very first word in Revelation is this Greek word apocalypsis, which essentially means an unveiling. Revelation means apocalypsis, which means unveiling. The primary image that this word evokes is that of a curtain being pulled back, a curtain being pulled open. We said that God, unlike Satan, wants to rip the curtain back so that we can see what's really going on. Satan is the one who likes to keep the curtain up so that you don't see what's really going on. John in this letter is trying to rip the curtain back so that you can see what is really going on. And we mentioned this last week, but it merits mentioning again because this is where interpretations of Revelation often go off the rails from the very start. But Revelation is not a book of secrets because God does not like to keep secrets. Now, this doesn't mean that God tells you everything that you think that you need to know, but it means that God has freely and gladly told you everything that you need to know. It is wild that we miss this because it's, it's literally the title of the book, in the very first word in the book. But revelation is the exact opposite thing 
as a book of secrets. Like if you were to Google, what is an antonym for a secret? What's a word that means the exact opposite thing as a secret? You know what would pop up? A revelation, right? So revelation is not a book full of secrets. It's a book of revelations, a book of unveiling, a book of God gladly telling us everything that we need to know because God wants to be understood, okay? All this to say revelation is in the Bible because rather than liking to keep secrets from us, God likes to be understood. And that's so simple. But like, if God didn't want to be understood, and if God liked to keep secrets from you, could have just not given you revelation, you know? That would have been easier than give you this really complicated book nobody can understand. All right, so that's the first thing. And then the other thing that this first phrase of revelation reminds us of that is so important is that revelation is an unveiling of what? It's an unveiling of Jesus Christ, what it says. The very first phrase of the book is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's not about primarily end-time predictions or kooky conspiracy theories. Is it about God explicitly telling us everything that we need to know by telling us about Jesus? Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He wrote a great commentary on Revelation. It says, Revelation is not information about the bad world that we live in. It's a proclamation by and about Jesus Christ. Revelation is nothing if not focused on Jesus Christ. Now, it is difficult to sustain this focus because there are so many fascinating symbols to pursue and so many intriguing subjects to take up that only a highly disciplined imagination holds everything in subordination to Jesus Christ. But it's the only way that Revelation can be read sanely. People who do not take these opening words at their full value will very likely end up using Revelation as a Rorschach test, reading more into the ink than they read out of it. So with all that said, let's again take it from the top. Now that we're all on the same page, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to read through the rest of chapter 1 today. So Revelation 1, we're going to basically read the whole thing. It'll be up here on the screen for you as well. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is Revelation's favorite way to talk about God. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see, and then send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, voice like an ocean. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all of its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. You remember this most common command in the Bible? Do not be afraid. Because I'm the living one, the first and the last. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I got the keys to death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Right? Revelation 1. So John, the writer of Revelation, which John? We can't know for sure, and it doesn't matter. Right? John, the writer of Revelation, is in some kind of exile on this island called Patmos when he has this, this vision that he then documents and is told to send out to these seven churches in ancient Asia. Dave is going to start walking us through the specifics of these seven churches next week. And so for our purposes today, the most important thing to acknowledge and note is that Revelation is a letter, right? It's a letter that was not written to us. Revelation is a letter that was not written to us. And when we were thinking about preaching through Revelation, this is one of the things that we were most excited about. Namely, reading Revelation is a great training in learning how to read the Bible well. Because if you can read Revelation well, with all of its weirdness, then brother, you're going to be able to read the whole Bible well. You know what I mean? It's like learning how to juggle with chainsaws. By the time you get to Psalms, oh, it'll just be so easy. You'll go down behind your back by the time you get to Psalms. And so if it's possible to read the Bible well, which I think we would all agree with, then this would imply that it's also possible to read the Bible not so well. Make sense? And I don't, I don't mean to sound like an elitist here, okay, because I'm not. I am nothing if not a man of the people. You give me a choice between a $1,000 bottle of champagne and a Coors Light. Brother, if those mountains are blue, then send that silver bullet over. You know what I mean? I'm a man of the people. But I think that honesty demands that we acknowledge that there is an awful lot of bad Bible reading out there. Have you seen it? Have you done it? I've done it many times. And the primary cause of a lot of this bad Bible reading that is out there is what I like to call the idolatry of sincerity. The idolatry of sincerity. And here's what I mean. A lot of us have been taught, it's really not our fault, we've been taught to read the Bible like some kind of you know, like divine self-help book. Wherein if we'll just read it with a sincere and open heart, sincerely seeking a word from the Lord, then whatever pops into our sincere and open heart must be a message from God. How, how could it not be? And forgive me because I know I'm, I'm not allowed to say this, slaying a sacred cow, but, but y'all, sincerity is, is very overrated. Okay, I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm just, it, it can be a little bit overrated because sincerity is not a good measure of reality. You know what I mean? Like the fact that you sincerely believe that something is true has no necessary bearing on whether or not what you sincerely believe is true because as you have 
hopefully discovered at some point in your life, hey, you can be sincerely wrong about something, can't you? I mean, y'all, I sincerely thought I was going to play in the NBA until I was like 17 years old, right up until the time I faced Kendrick Perkins in the basketball camp in 2003 at Texas A&M. Right, if you're not familiar with the name Kendrick Perkins, uh, at the time, he was uh, seven feet tall, Beaumont O's in high school, deep East Texas, seven feet tall, the number one ranked player in the class of 2004. He would go on to become the uh, starting center for the 2008 NBA champion, Boston Celtics, okay? And so there I was, all five foot seven, 97 pounds of me, right? Staring down Kendrick Perkins, Kendrick Perkins, okay? And I just knew, I just knew that this was my moment. I was going to show the whole basketball world why I, and not Kendrick Perkins, was the true future of the NBA. And so in the third quarter, I had my moment. It took to the third quarter because he literally didn't show up till halftime because he knew his team would only need him for like half the game. So he comes out like in his pajamas at halftime. He jumps on the court. First play, I get my chance, right? So I, I cross my guy over. In my mind, it was lightning fast. In reality, it was probably kind of more like this, right? <laughs> I cut into the lane, man, the Red Seas part, and there he is, Kendrick Perkins, right? Mono a mono, Fisher versus Perkins. This is what all 10 people in the stands came to see, baby. <laughs> and so I rise up, man. I'm looking at him. He's right on the go, and I think about just rising up and just smashing one on him, right? Putting him on a poster for the rest of his life, dunking his career into oblivion. But then I remembered that I couldn't dunk. This is going to be a very serious problem with the plan, you know what I mean? I need to be able to dunk. So I decided what I'm going to do instead is I'm just going to drop this little teardrop floater right over Kendrick Perkins' nine-foot-tall outstretched hand. And so i got to do I drop this little teardrop floater, and Kendrick Perkins proceeds to, I think the only appropriate word is, spike this ball off the backboard so hard that the brace literally buckled. Have you ever seen a brace buckle on a backboard? It's, this is a picture of it. Um, it's a very violent action. The ball was deflated. The ump had to just, he had to def- you know, put air back in the ball metaphorically too. It was a rough moment, man, because as it turns out, my sincerity was no substitute for the reality of the foot and a half and 200 pounds separating me from Kendrick Perkins. You get the idea. The fact that you sincerely believe that something is true is great, but it has no bearing on whether or not you are sincerely right about it. You're just as likely to be sincerely wrong as you are to be sincerely right. And so as it pertains to this all-important issue of learning to read the Bible well, it is good to read the Bible sincerely seeking a word from God. Like, that's great. What else are you going to do? Like, not do that? So that's good. But your sincerity is a very poor foundation for good biblical interpretation because it's putting way too much trust in your sincerity. And so rather than sincerity, the appropriate foundation for good biblical interpretation is a very simple and agreed upon principle. And you'll get it as soon as you hear it. Here's how it goes. The Bible was written for you, but it was not written to you. So if you want to know what it might mean for you, then you must first understand what it meant to them. Make sense? The Bible was written for you. It was. That's why it's here. But it wasn't written to you. This letter was written to the seven churches in ancient Asia, right? So if you want to understand what it might mean for you, then you first have to understand what it meant for them. So, for example, when we get further on in Revelation, it starts to get a little bit weirder. Okay, Revelation 13, 11. It's one of these weird little verses. It says this. Uh, let's get that verse up there. It says something about the beast. What's the verse about the beast? Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. 
Okay? So it is not okay for you to read this and go, I know who the beast is. I know who the Antichrist is. It's Donald Trump. It's Joe Biden. I know it. I sincerely believe that it's him. And just as an aside, have you ever noticed that the Antichrist always seems to be the most recent president who you didn't vote for? You ever notice that? <laughs> That's so weird. It's always who it is. You'd think Satan would be a little trickier. Right? Because just think about this for a minute, y'all. You really think that John, John the Revelator, writing 2,000 years ago to Christians in ancient Asia who lived under the brutal regime of the Emperor Domitian who were literally being murdered for their faith, you think that he thought it was important to talk to them about 21st century American politics? You really think John's like, hey, man, I know you're uh, literally being tortured, but I need a few words for the 21st century Americans real quick. They'll understand it later. Does that make sense to you? Does that not strike you as just a teeny tiny bit self-absorbed, maybe? Right? Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that the Bible in general, or Revelation in particular, has nothing to say about the present or the future. Obviously, it does, or we wouldn't bother reading it. Right? We believe that the Bible is living and active. That's what Hebrews says, which, among many other things, it means that God still speaks to us through it. As we just heard Jesus say in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We see this refrain throughout Revelation, this reminder that Jesus Christ is our origin, our present, and our future. All that to say, Revelation includes all these vectors of the past, the present, and the future. They overlap all the time in Revelation. But our interpretation needs to be anchored in understanding what it meant in its original context. Make sense? Otherwise, man, you're just like, you're like a kite without an anchor. You're just flying all over the place. And you may be, you know, you may sincerely believe your interpretation, but you have sincerely made it up. You know what I mean? Got to be grounded in what it meant. And then speaking of time, this is very interesting. You, you may have noticed that John writes Revelation with this sense of, of urgency, this sense of immediacy. Just in chapter 1 alone, we'll start here in chapter 1, he says that, uh, what is it, in verse 3, he says, he's, in verse 1, he says he's writing about the things which must soon take place. In verse 3, he kind of wraps it up, and he's like, hey, on all this stuff, I want you to know that the time is near on it. Last chapter of Revelation, this comes up again. John again says, I'm writing about the things which must soon take place. In Revelation 22, verse 7, Jesus himself says, Behold, I am coming quickly. A few verses later, in verse 10, John again says, Hey, the time is near. Two verses later, Jesus again says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Finally, in Revelation 22, verse 20, second to last verse in the letter, Jesus says, Hey, behold, I am coming quickly. And this belief that the end was near because Jesus was returning very soon is something we see throughout the New Testament because many, probably most of the New Testament writers, and certainly John, the writer of Revelation, y'all, they thought that Jesus was coming back like any day now. I mean, in their lifetimes and, and longest would just be shortly thereafter, their lifetimes. And so what do we do with the fact that the New Testament writers clearly believed that the end was near when the end, so far as I can tell, was apparently not very near? It's a tough question, isn't it? John DeBrock, you want to answer that one? That's, That's a tough one. I got no easy answers for us here. 
But the church throughout her history has really struggled with how to understand this. Uh, some people have tried to kind of get John and the other New Testament writers off the hook by, by you know, suggesting that when John says that the end is near, he doesn't really mean that it's actually near. He just means that it's going to happen eventually. So it's like if you've ever been on a 12-hour long road trip with a toddler and you ever done that, also known as hell. All right, without fail, you pull it out of the driveway, and what does the little guy ask you? Are we there yet? And you want to be like, man, better buckle up, bro. You're about to have the longest day of your life. It's going to be an eternity, man. It's going to be eternity. But you're not going to say that, right? So what do you say? You go, oh, yeah, man, we'll be there soon. Just keep sipping on that Benadryl smoothie that Dad made you, and we'll be there. <laughs> the time will be near. It's good. Look, I get it. The Apostle Peter even seems to sort of take this angle in 2 Peter 3, verse 8. You've probably heard this verse before. He says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So it's really interesting to, to kind of just sort out, why do you think Peter wrote this? Well, because obviously, even there in the first century, he was dealing with this frustration of Jesus' delayed uh, return where people thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetimes and now it had been decades. People are wondering what in the world is going on. Did it get lost on the way back? I wouldn't think that'd be you know, like hard to figure out. And Peter's like, well, you know, I mean, uh, soon to God means different than soon to us. Thousand years, day, day, thousand years, bingo, bingo, bongo, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there's obviously some truth to that. But I think the most honest thing that we can do here, and I think it's so important that Christians be honest, just be honest. Just be honest when we've got tensions that we're trying to sort through. Is to acknowledge that the early Christians thought that Jesus was coming back really soon. And they were wrong. They thought he was coming back in their lifetimes. And they were wrong. And it just really doesn't matter. They were wrong about all sorts of things. They thought the earth was flat. And there are at least a couple of very important lessons that we can learn here. Very important lessons. First off, we have to repent of our obsession with predicting the end. We have to repent of our obsession with predicting the end. Now, we don't have time to delve into the psychology of why we love to do this. It gives us some illusion of control, but we really have to stop doing this. And what's craziest about this obsession that we have with predicting the end is that Jesus explicitly told us that it's not our business, so we shouldn't do it. Two different times Jesus addresses this head on. Mark 13, verse 32. He says, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Jesus is like, man, I don't even know. You think he's going to tell you? I don't know. Acts 1, 6 through 7. This is as Jesus is about to ascend. As now when they, the disciples, had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So there it is, right? Clear as day. Red letters. Jesus saying, hey, don't try to predict the end. It's not going to go well for you. You're going to look like a dum-dum and you're going to ruin your witness. Because right? anything discredited Christianity more than these Christians pretending like they don't know when the end is and then it just doesn't happen. We all look like a bunch of bozos. Right, Jesus tells us, hey, don't do it. You're going to look really dumb, and it's not your business. And so we hear that, and we go, okay. So you're saying it's next Monday. All right? 
Wink twice. Is it the next Monday? I mean, the next time somebody I don't like gets elected president, I know that much. You get it. We have to repent of our obsession with predicting the end every time somebody we don't like becomes president. Y'all, because for all we know, we could be the early church, right? You ever thought about that? I, I don't know. Do you know. I don't have any reason to believe we're not. World history could go on for a billion years, baby. A million years from now, people will look back and they'll be like, hey, do you remember that, that early church in Temple, Texas, Vista Community Church? They were, they were a little bit rowdy. They are a little bit backwards, too. They didn't believe in aliens. They didn't let aliens become members. You know, they, they didn't even have the Bible downloaded in that little software patch. They still read it like a bunch of idiots. Very primitive people, but they did their best, you know. I don't know. And then the second lesson that, that we can learn here is we deal with this tension of an expectation of an imminent end. And then an end that keeps not happening is we have to learn to live with a sense of humble urgency. Humble urgency. We have to live with humility because Jesus told us to mind our own business and the end is not your business. It's not your business. So we have to live with humility. But then we also have to learn with a sense of, learn to live with a sense of urgency with the understanding that we should not delay our obedience, that we should live today as if Jesus were returning tomorrow. That's how we should live. But, but why would you want to do that, right? Isn't that a weird psychological deal? Why would you live today as if Jesus is returning tomorrow when you know that he's probably not? It's a fair question, but here's why you should do it. Because the end may not be near, but your end, oh, buddy, it is very near, okay? The end, all caps, man, I, I don't know when that is. It could be a billion years from now. I don't know, but what I do know is that your end is very near. And I don't say this to scare you. you know, I've been at Vista. You, you know we don't do the whole evangelism by terrorism sort of deal. We don't do that. But I'm just trying to shoot you straight on this thing. Because maybe you got five months. Some of you in here probably do just have five months. It's inevitable with this many people. Maybe you got 95 more years. Who knows, man? Modern medicine, maybe you have 200 more years. But whether you got five months or 95 more years, man... Against the scope of cosmic history, you don't have long. Bloop. You'll be gone. It's gone. And again, I don't say any of this to try to scare you, but just to try to wake you up. Because living with this sense of, of urgency that Revelation wants to instill in us, it's, it's not about being afraid of what might happen to you when you die. No, no, no. Rather, it's about learning how to cherish how precious it is to be alive. Do you realize how precious it is for you to be alive? How, how just wild it is that you exist? And I know it's hard to, to see that because we're so entitled to life because it's all we've ever known, right? You've never known what it's not like to exist. You're like, yeah, I deserve to be here, but you don't. There is no good reason for you to be here. The only reason you are here is because you have been gifted existence by a good and gracious God who wants you to be here. That's all. And so wake up today and act like it. Don't defer the joy of obedience. That's what this is about. That's what the urgency is about. Joy. And then I like to end with these verses of Jesus that end this vision that John has in chapter 1. It's verses 17 through 18. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But then he placed his right hand on me. And he said, Do not be afraid. Because I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death 
in Hades. Now, I, I know I just spent a lot of time telling you that you shouldn't try to predict the end. I'm now going to violate my rule, and I'm going to predict the end. I'm going to predict your end, all of your end. Let me find it. There it is. You, every last one of you, you are going to die. I got a gift, uh, you know. And everybody you love is going to die. And it's going to be okay. In fact, it's going to be more than okay. Because Jesus already holds the keys to death in Hades. And I, don't, I really don't mean to diminish any of the grief and suffering that a lot of you have walked in here with. Because I know what some of you have walked in here with. Now some of you have had to bury children. Some of you have experienced unbelievable trauma, grief, and oppression. I don't mean to minimize any of the grief or suffering that we will all face in the future. It's, it's inevitable. It's part of being a human. But I do want to remind you that Jesus starts off the apocalypse by reminding us that the future has already been drained of all the dread and all the drama because the most decisive action has already been taken. Because Jesus Christ has borne all of our sin and all of our suffering. Jesus has already died our death. Jesus has already conquered the grave. So there's nothing left hanging in the balance. And so many twists and turns lie ahead for you, for me, for every single human. But make no mistake on this point, okay? Make no mistake. The future, y'all, the future is our friend. Because Jesus already holds the keys. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. It's hard to remember. We feel like we do. But we don't. We are here because and only because a good and gracious God wants us to be here. We come before you today as a church family, new friends, old friends, and We bring a lot of grief into the room, a lot of suffering into the room, suffering that has been inflicted upon us and suffering we have inflicted upon others. We ask that you would help us to remember down deep in our bones that the future is our friend because the good news is always better than the bad news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.